You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So welcome everybody today. Um, I'm Professor Finney Wade from Computer Science Department and Director of the DAP Research Centre. Um, and along with my coordinator of the uh, Human Plus program, uh, Professor Jane Almar from the Modern History Department. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you all here today. Um, we're having a series of these Human Plus Tech Talks which is really looking at how humans can be in the center of the emerging technologies. And what does that mean from a humanities perspective, and what does that mean from a technology perspective? And really, we see a challenge in going forward, really, is trying to ensure that we are shaping society and shaping technology to suit the society that we want. That we're not running after technology and just trying to tag on societal impacts on the edges. What we would like to be able to do is really become more human-centric about the technology. And in the last talks, you've, you've, you've heard about avatars and you've heard about uh, identity and, and uh, aspects to them. But well, today, uh, we're going to focus more on discussions around the future of robots in everyday lives. I'm delighted to introduce a Human Plus uh, fellow, Dr. Pat Troish, um, who will lead a discussion. Um, and Pat joined us as uh, one of the key uh, research fellows in this area. I'd also on the panel like to introduce Professor Conor McGinn, a colleague of mine from the Department of Calculation and Mechanical, Manufacturing and Biomedical Engineering. That is enough. <laughs> um, uh, Professor Ben Cowan uh, from the School of Information and Communications, and uh, Fiona McDermott, Dr. Fiona McDermott, who's a research fellow with the SFI Connect Centre. So I'll turn it over to the chair of the session, Pat. Thank you. Thank you. Also, a warm welcome from me. And um, yeah, there is so much to say about robots in our everyday lives. I feel more than delighted to discuss this topic today with all of you, and especially also with my wonderful co-panelists that I will introduce now a bit further. And then, Yes, and then I will give a short introduction, then Benjamin will talk, then Fiona, and then Connor. But only short inputs, and the focus, of course, is um, on discussing also with you. Dr. Fiona McDermott is a research fellow at the SFI Connect Research Center for Future Networks at Trinity College Dublin, and a lecturer at the School of Visual Culture at the National College of Art and Design Dublin. Her research explores the development and application of emerging internet technologies from an interdisciplinary perspective, paying particular attention to the environmental, spatial, and social cultural dimensions. Um, Dr. Ben Cohen is an associate professor at UCD School of Information and Communication Studies. His research lies at the juncture between psychology, human-computer interaction, and speech interfaces in investigating how design impacts aspects of user behavior in social collaborative and communicative speech-based technology interactions. He is co-director of the HCI at UCD Group and is principal investigator at the ADAPT Center. Dr. Connor McGinn is an assistant professor at TCD School of Engineering. He is also co-founder and CEO of Akara Robotics, a Dublin-based robotic company and spin-out of TCD. He is interested in designing, developing and evaluating social service robots. You might be familiar with the robot Stevie or his recent work on ultraviolet cleaning robots. Connor is also my academic supervisor from computer science in the Human Plus program 
and my project work benefits largely from this collaboration on how to structurally integrate humanistic inquiry into robotic engineering. Now, because it was so much fun last time with Kata's tech talk, let's also begin with a question, <laughs> similar to the last tech talk. And my question for you is, do you want a robot in your everyday lives? If the answer is yes, please raise your hand now. Cool. <laughs> if your answer is no, please raise your hand now. And if you're undecided, please raise your hand now. Okay. So I would say I feel like the majority said yes. <laughs> and uh, thank you, first of all. I will start now with my presentation. Our worlds of the global north are increasingly inhabited by a number of visual and textual narratives of a robot technologies driven future that seems to start already now. Headlines report not only that the robots are coming, but also what they are coming for. In most cases, they depict the robotic arrival as a rather hostile uh, endeavor and that the robots are coming to steal our jobs. There also exists an almost equivalent number of headlines that advertise the robotic future in which the robots are coming to serve as our somewhat human-like social companions that will be beneficial to us and help us in different social scenarios, from shopping to elderly and infant care. Just to, I think we all have pictures in our head, but just to give you a picture, very um, famous Sophia robot, this article from January 2021 said, every household will have a Sophia robot by the end of 2021. Then of course the recent example, Elon Musk's uh, Optimus, and they say that the robot will be commercially available within the next three to five years. These are more the companion, but Sophia is also negotiated as becoming a maid or nurse robot. And then, of course, we have the robot in, you know, at the assembly lines. And here we have an armada of uh, robot arms, or we have these creepy robots. We don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> and why we need these robots for doing that. And of course, the question is, what robot did you have in mind when you answered my first question about your own robot? Because I want to challenge the idea that there can be an easy answer to the question, even, so, even though I said yes myself, do we want robots in our everyday lives, yes or no? It is important to clarify what kind and what kinds of robots we are talking about. The issue at hand is much more complicated, and it includes quest raising questions like, what will it cost to buy and maintain such a robot? Will customized humanoid or and non-humanoid robots be available? And should the user identify themselves with or feel represented by the robot? What kind of tasks will be automatized? Here I'm thinking of robots as co-workers at the assembly line, but also as maids, social companions in everyday lives, and the list goes on. Who will benefit? And who will be involved in the design, development, and implementation of this new class of robots? This is, of course, a question that our transdisciplinary panel today will um, address. <laughs> a very <laughs> good slide here. <laughs> I, um, I say that there exists a gap between generations and promises of robots like Sophia and Cole, and the societal and individual needs. And my research, for example, is situated exactly within this gap. 
Robotech has and will have in the future a huge impact on our societies, as certain robots will, be, will become part of our everyday lives. This is not purely a technical challenge of realizing such forms of automation. It is a profoundly social-cultural challenge as well. My work pivots around stipulating a conversation that brings the potential owners and the potential developers back into the loop. Have you noticed that on all pictures there were no humans depicted? <laughs> and so the question is, I think this is an open question, who belongs to these groups and why? This should be discussed and not assumed. And we need new robots and new stories. And my ultimate goal is to not only tell new stories about human-robot futures, but also to co- and recraft these futures through transdisciplinary collaboration. Our future with robots has not been written yet, it is still open. What perspectives, insights and tools are needed to open up forms of transdisciplinary collaboration that strives for to better align robotic and AI tech innovation and the social cultural context of innovation? And now my co-panelists will give some insights on their research on that topic. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, so, uh, my name is Ben Cowan. I just want to firstly say thanks so much for inviting me uh, to be on the panel today. Uh, I feel that um, my background is relevant to this uh, discussion of where robots are placed uh, in society or for everyday lives, but probably not as a roboticist. So, I'm not a roboticist. I uh, study speech interfaces and speech interaction with machines more generally. Uh, and so, I'm going to talk a bit about um, what we've done at UCD, or what we've uh, tried to understand about what that actually means when we say that we're communicating with a machine um, as a dialogue partner. And some of the things I'm going to touch upon are this aspect of perspective taking, uh, as well as the human likeness of the agents that we try and interact with. And so I think these are the two of the key fundamental concepts that we need to consider whenever thinking about social robots from a conversational perspective. So, my work tends to focus a lot on this, so this type of interaction where you're speaking with another individual. And I find this interaction fascinating because we're doing an awful lot of things when we're interacting with somebody else. And one of the things I find interesting here is we're doing a bit of mind reading. So we're doing a lot of things where we're trying to understand what this person the, uh, that we're speaking to knows and understands. And we use a lot of cues from what the person does, so whether that's hand gestures, head nods, some of the kind of paralinguistic cues you might see, but also we use cues like stereotypes or the, the context that we're interacting in to inform this. Dialogue doesn't only just happen with another person. It also happens with a number of other people. We call this, in our research area, we call this multi-party dialogue. So in this case here, we've got four people having a conversation, uh, potentially about this shop here, Runner's Den, uh, or about their running. Um, uh, their, their speeds and things like that. The key thing to note here, though, is there are a number of people involved, so that mind reading that we do in dialogue gets much more complex, but it's still an important aspect of trying to get this conversation fluid and this conversation going in a way that's, uh, that's appropriate. We're also using a number of cues 
in this interaction to cue whether we're available for conversation, whether we're open to the points that are being stated, uh, as well as when we want to interject with a, conversa uh, with a conversational point. So what happens then when we uh, make one of these, or some of these people, a robot? So, um, that, and this is where this gets interesting. So our work uh, recently on a concept called partner models, which is what we do when we try and mind reading conversation, is try to look at what are the important elements whenever we're interacting with a machine dialogue partner uh, in conversation, uh, and what are the things that are driving our perceptions of capability and competence. And one of the major things is the anthropomorphism, the human likeness that a system has. Now this isn't necessarily good, um, because the problem is that the functionality from a conversational perspective does not match the communicated capability of a human-like design. So systems just don't operate like humans. They can't yet. So we have to be more honest in terms of how we design robots for everyday lives. What might that honesty look like in terms of design? Well, it may not look humanoid. It might look a little bit more something like Pepper, for instance. So it might be something that's a little bit more cartoonish, a little bit smaller, uh, but communicates something about being a different entity rather than this aspect of a facsimile of a human. And that's probably going to simplify the development perspective, but also from a psychological perspective, is more akin to and appropriate to the functionality that's there. I also want to touch back a little bit on this aspect, what happens in multi-party interactions. A number of speech systems at present find it very hard to be proactive. So they find it very hard to be able to identify when and with what content they have to engage in conversation with. And that's a major challenge with any dialogue system, including in robotics. So we can use cues in robots, so things like hand gestures or movements or nods to try and what's called take the floor. But the problem is here is that when do we do that? And when are we going to ask somebody to be proactive in an interaction? Imagine, say, for instance, that your robot is helping you uh, to cook or is helping you in your house. You might be actually doing something. Your primary task is the most important thing. How does that robot engage you in conversation? When does it interrupt you? When does it think about interrupting you appropriately? And what's the right thing it should say and how it should say it? These are all major questions that we have at the moment in our field. And it's one thing that we have to, we have to consider when we think about robots in everyday life. So my, my final message here is that my view and my discussion with this panel is that rather than going for something human-like, let's go for something not human-like. And that includes voice and appearance to get this more accurate match between functionality and capability of the system for a dialogue partner. So, thank you very much. That's me. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Pat, for having me. Apologies, there's no robots in my talk whatsoever. I think I'm here more for the, um, the, the element of bringing together engineering and uh, humanistic thinking rather than the robots. Um, so, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I, I kind of, my, my research looks a lot at uh, autonomous systems, but at an urban scale, so either those that are already deployed to some degree, or those that are kind of poised and imagined to kind of uh, come, into, um, uh, come into our lives in the future. Um, and my background is actually in architecture and urban planning and urban design, so a lot of my research is about looking at that gap between how engineers kind of imagine solving urban problems versus how architects and, and urban designers uh, 
uh, view or would approach uh, uh, urban problems. So, um, yeah, the, the autonomous vehicle is kind of something that um, has always fascinated me as uh, it's used time and time again as the justification for, for um, engineering uh, applications. So you will see it in the first paragraph uh, all the time in engineering papers, we are developing this technology because we need autonomous vehicles. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why do we need autonomous vehicles? <laughs> but it's been this like really um, persistent and enduring imaginary of an autonomous system since this is from 1939. Uh, it's the World Fair in New York, um, and this really. Uh, out of this world exhibition that was built by Bell Giddes that shows these kind of uh, automated um, highways and it's, it's really kind of endured um, in the public imagine, imagination uh, ever since then. Um, and kind of similar to, um, sorry, similar to how, uh, sorry, I, I, my, my slides are, I've kind of messed up my slides, I'll go or similar to uh, the point of Padmed um, in terms of the absence of human, the, the, the kind of current image, the current uh, images of autonomous vehicles are always kind of devoid of humans and they're this, from this very kind of deterministic, uh, reductive view of what um, our cities could be. So uh, it's always kind of driven by this logic of, of predictability and uh, regularity and uh, controllability, um, which is kind of um, very much in contrast, say, sorry, apologies for this, uh, with how kind of architects imagine uh, urban space. So I'm very interested in these different epistemologies towards um, how the, how the um, technology of the car, how it kind of um, impacts in terms of uh, urban space and in terms of mobility and, and navigation. So this is um, a study by, um, it was a book by Alison Smithson, who was a famous brutalist architect, but she also did um, a lot of research um, uh, in terms of looking at how the car uh, changed the urban environment, um, in terms of built form, in terms of how people moved, and also in terms of kind of social behavior. Um, but it's very much from the human scale, and very um, embodied, and um, uh, yeah, looking at it from, from different kind of geographical perspectives as well. Um, and this is another kind of famous study by architects called Denise Scott Brown and uh, Robert Venturi. It's called, um, they wrote a book called Learning from Las Vegas, where they uh, took this approach of looking at the, at the form that was being kind of carved out by the, by the car at the time um, and looking at how it was. Uh, affecting kind of um, yeah affecting the the, the 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 building of a new kind of landscape um, so so yeah it's kind of I suppose about asking questions about how how uh, these autonomous systems conceptualize and operationalize space how they render spatial environments measurable and how they might reorder and create new sorts of uh, urban cultures. But in ways, there's kind of a lot of parallels then to be, um, to be kind of seen between how both these kind of architects. So this is from the Learning from Las Vegas study, 
uh, which kind of looks like an autonomous vehicle set up uh, in terms of uh, LiDAR scanning, uh, but this is from 1968. But I think it's interesting to think about the parallels between maybe how they were studying and understanding the environment and how the um, engineers now with autonomous vehicles try and understand it in terms of they're, they're both um, sensing, scanning, kind of tracking, mapping, mapping the environment at a high resolution. Um, yet I would argue that the architects kind of offer more than efficiency of data and uh, statistical analysis, but they bring a much more uh, reflective, ethnographic, and political thinking to the complex ways that the technology of the car is shaping the city. Um, so, yeah, and, and just to note maybe on kind of alternative narratives of autonomous vehicles, I think um, art and design also kind of has this interesting role in terms of breaking down these sort of typical uh, narratives, either utopian or dystopian narratives um, of robotic technologies. This is um, a project by the artist James Bridal, where he just simply kind of draws a, a, a salt outline uh, to kind of trick the machine learning um, algorithm. <laughs> uh, but I guess it kind of shows the kind of the, the real limitations of, um, of these technologies. And this is another project by John Ravy, these kind of famous uh, critical designers from the RCA in London, and they have this project, um, I suppose it's quite dystopian, called DigiCars, but it looks at the future of um, the future of kind of automated cars, less about transversing time and space efficiently, but more about um, the kind of, it's more about economy, uh, economy of space, so in this vision everybody is standing up uh, a little bit similar to the scooter vision, I suppose, but I suppose they offer alternative kind of critical understandings and, um, yeah, critical, different understandings of, of uh, these technologies. Okay, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
such as after nuclear reactors go off, you know, setting a technology is a way to, to solve a lot of these kind of problems. And robots are you know, a key part of that because not only do they have the AI to be able to make intelligent decisions, but they have the physical capability to do useful things. Um, another application we kind of touched on is around autonomous vehicles. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but 90 plus percent of you know, the causation of, of car accidents is down to human error. Again, technology is a potential to prevent that. Um, so, you know, these are just some of the examples. Looking forward, you know, growing uh, population that's getting increasingly old means that we, you know, again, use hospitals as, as the reference point. I think by 2030, there's going to be a global healthcare shortage of 18 million people. So again, we need technology, I argue, to, to do this. Um, and I think robots are the core of that. I think where the, where the questions come, where the conversation becomes, is exactly how, what, um, and, and where we, we use robots. And, and that's currently in negotiation. Uh, and my research and the research of my team uh, is all about exploring this. And as you can see, bridging this gap, it's, it's a big gap. We see people talking all the time um, about you know, the age of, of robots is, is now, and, you know, the introduction of technology like this to society is inevitable, but then, you know, more often than not, when we see it in practice, it falls below expectations. And again, you know, we've seen the last week or two, uh, an example of that, if anyone was, one, was, was, was watching Tesla's AI day. Again, huge hype, then reality is, is, is much, much, much lower. And again, it's easy to fall into this trap because I think there's you know, two compelling, very challenging things happening. On one hand, the development of very complex technology, um, and then on the second hand, the integration of that very tech, very very um, integration of that very complex technology with very complicated environments. Not just physical environments, but uh, and I'll credit Pat for educating you on this word, but also very complex socio-cultural environments, where the lots of aspects of the, the the use case specifically that it's working around people and um, promotes challenges or introduces challenges. Um, in this slide, I just want to touch on some of the work that my team and I have been doing here in Trinity and. Uh, in the, the startup that we've uh, we set up, uh, start with the bottom left, and um, this is a project back in 2011 uh, where we developed a, a robot that was able to perform some assistive tasks for a person with uh, who was born without any arms or legs. In particular, um, the, the robot needed to pick up objects from the ground for her. Um, what you see here is a kind of quasi anthropomorphic robot, so it has some of the resemblance of, of a human, which is important to the characteristics that she stipulated, um, but importantly, we were able to overcome. Uh, some of the challenges of building anthropomorphic robots um, by using things like linear joints rather than rotational joints. Um, the robot in the center here, which looks more like a teddy bear than a robot, is a design for pediatric use cases where children have to spend extended periods of time in hospital where they don't have access to the kind of social supports that they otherwise would. Um, and the robot is effectively able to respond effectively uh, to touch so that, you know, it, with the hope that it can potentially reduce some of the, the, the you know, psychological um, issues that, that children have when they're when they're forced to deal with those difficult circumstances. Um, bottom right here, this is a disinfection robot that is under active development. Um, we're testing it and providing it in hospitals. Uh, here, we're able to massively reduce the time it takes to do terminal decontamination of, of treatment rooms. Uh, typically, can take a room like this could take between forty and sixty minutes to, to disinfect a third. We're doing it within at a higher standard within five to ten minutes. A hospital could do. If it integrates this kind of technology, about 6,000 additional procedures a year per robot. So you know that has an equivalent effect of um, that has an equivalent effect of, of almost uh, you know getting an extra CT machine. And um, the last two robots up here are actually the CV robot, which I'll come back to a bit later. But again, the challenge here we are trying to address 
was the labour burden and the quality of life issues that emerge when older people uh, go to nursing homes and, and the staff shortages that go with it. Um, it's easy to look at, at Hollywood and Elon you know, Musk, as I've mentioned, and, and think about you know, the inevitability of these takeovers, but in practice, um, this isn't the case. And I just want to quickly touch on something. I saw some earlier today on Twitter, which is probably not the obvious place to go to for referencing <laughs> talks like this, but it was, it was, it was shared by um, a person called Michael Taylor, uh, who's a senior engineer at Amazon, uh, their robotics division. Um, but she presented this and goes through some of the kind of the, um, the different steps that need to be taken to go from a, you know, an idea or a robot into actual adoption. At the first bottom stage of it, it's safety. The robot needs to be able to meet certain things to be compliant with certain standards that exist. Um, you know, in Europe, CE Mark and GDPR are, um, are the standard. It's a medical device, there's additional ones. Once you have that, that only gets you in the door. You then need to earn the trust of the people who are using the technology. So again, we've seen lots of examples of robots that are functional, but they get into places and then the staff don't like them and they gather dust and don't get adopted. And so you know, working closely with the users is key. It needs to have a clear ROI. Um, you know, more often than not, that ROI is the accountant that's selling you if it's going to work or not. But increasingly now, again, especially with older people, where there's a kind of a social return on investment, things like depression um, and social isolation, these all actually have um, a cost to healthcare systems. And increasingly, there's ways in which we can build ROIs around that. Um, and then only at the only once we've done those things does adoption uh, come in. And it, it, this is all on top of the technology being developed and validated. So when we see a nice demo on YouTube, usually it's only at this point. There's a huge amount to go before it gets to here. And bridging the gap between kind of technical research to this is, is a key challenge for the future. And it's something that excites me in particular about the Human Plus program, because I think at the core of the Human Plus program, that's what we're doing here. And do I have a minute to finish with the video? Uh, half a minute? Half a minute, perfect. So, I'll finish with a video uh, of Stevie, and in this case I'll share is that what ended up happening was we built this social role, but the idea was to make it do lots of things in nursing homes. And we felt initially that what we'd get it to do was very functional things that needed to be done on a day-to-day -day basis. But what ended up happening was we started to engage at this stage with the, with the users. Uh, they started talking about experiential elements, things that they wanted to do and what they enjoyed doing. And we effectively learned that in order to get it adopted, we needed to do stuff around here that was not obvious. And one of them was singing, because in nursing homes, um, music is something that a lot of people enjoy and share. It's, it's something that's actually very difficult for staff to, to use within the organization. And the man you'll see here, uh, this guy called Phil. That's as high as the violin goes. Okay, you get the idea. So we learned that Stevie's singing voice was not what it could be. Um, and interestingly, we've actually started spending time now on understanding how we can improve the privacy uh, qualities of synthetic speech in order to make it better applications like this. And this kind of great, you know, this bottom-up approach, the cyclic approach to development, which is linked into, you know, usually the step beyond technical validation, in my view, is, is an important prerequisite for, uh, you know, actually operationalizing these kinds of technologies. Thank you. All right, thank you.